Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another season of 20 Mile. We're really excited to be back for season two uh, and excited again to welcome another uh, guest today. Uh, we're your hosts. I'm Mike Williams and uh, Gabriel Varsante as well. Uh, and we're excited to uh, have another founder here to tell about their march. Uh, and today we have Caleb Burnaby, uh, co-founder and CEO of VIN. Uh, he was born in Victoria, lived for, in Vancouver for a little while, and then found his way back uh, to what we'll call home. Uh, Caleb has uh, some college. Uh, he, he spent some time in, in medis medicine and med school uh, and also pursuing an architectural master's. Uh, when, when Caleb's not working, which is quite rare, uh, he can be found reading, cooking in the outdoors, doing a little bit of surfing, uh, you know, spending time with, with his cars and motorcycles, uh, and also considers himself a bit of a design nerd, spending time doing architectural design and furniture design, which sounds super interesting. Uh, Caleb's superpower, we consider, he considers it to be, an, he's an extremely quick learner. Uh, by the sounds of all those hobbies and those things he's done, it sounds like he's picked up on them pretty quick. So uh, at this point, I'll hand it off to Gabe, and we'll take it from there. Well, welcome, Caleb. Well, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, so uh, let's just right, jump right into it. What can you uh, tell us about VIN? Oh, uh, so VIN is a company that that was incepted about uh, coming up on two years ago now uh, in the automotive space. And our deliverable product is that uh, we bring e-commerce to the automotive industry. Um, so we allow consumers to buy a car, new or used, at, directly online through a platform without having to negotiate with or, or deal, deal with uh, any representatives at a dealership. Okay. And what, so can you tell us a bit about how you guys got into this space, like when, how you identified this problem and, uh, well, facilitated for all the users that you were, that you have today? Sure. Uh, slightly accidental, I'd say, as a lot of good products are. Um, I, in the interim of a, a medical career and considering some design architectural work, um, found my way into a great position with the automotive group. Um, while I was doing some, some marketing and business development work there. And it was while I was working there that I realized there was a pretty large need for some thought leadership in the industry or for someone to step in and um, provide sort of the acceleration needed to push the industry past a, a pretty stagnant state and into at least sort of the bare minimum standard e-commerce transactions for, I guess, what, what's become standard in every other industry. Um, so I, I was kind of toying with the idea of, of making something happen, but it's obviously a, a huge leap to make some career changes and, and actually try to build the product out and, and to do that um, and, to, and to really put all your effort into it. So I was lucky enough to meet a couple great co-founders um, that are technically and financially gifted in, in areas where I'm not so that we could kind of create the product, bring it to the market, continue to test, uh, figure out how we could address um, immediately solvable issues for, for car dealerships and for consumers. Um, both sides of the industry, supply and demand are, are in a a weird spot right now where there's little happening in terms of innovation in the way that cars have been distributed like re really since the early 1960s so um, that seemed like an exciting opportunity and while at face value it wasn't I'd say as you know um, appealing from a 
just from a kind of sex appeal perspective is the the design stuff and the architectural stuff and and all the the things that I found to be more uh, personally interesting. Um, we kind of embraced the idea of having an antiquated industry that was ready for some change and, and that being its own interesting opportunity in and of itself. So yeah, that's that's kind of how we uh, incepted the product and and I guess it, it just continued to evolve over the years to the point where we were able to launch uh, in March of last year on the market and um, things are going really well. Okay, oh. yeah, and you mentioned a very interesting point there where, you know, instead of focusing on the latest trend or the newest shiny thing, you took a common sense approach, saw a problem, you may not be the sexiest, but it's something that is working and working well um, to fix this gap in the market for you guys. Yeah, for sure. And there's a there's a lot of fulfillment in that, actually. Um, the industry that you're probably most drawn to is, I think, likely to be full of really talented people who are, you're going to have a hard time uh, differentiating yourself in a room with. But the interesting thing for us with automotive was even sort of the bare minimum standard for something that I personally would feel is acceptable in terms of design and business practice um, could at times be seen as, as much more revolutionary than it actually was. Um, so there's there's some fulfillment there. And, and hopefully um, with some more success, what we can do is, is drive the standard of the industry up so we actually become surrounded with the people who, who are pushing us and, and helping us um, push our product and, and our business even further as we kind of elevate the standard of of people, culture, and product that that are in automotive, um, that, that would be great for us. And I think there's opportunity there in any stagnant industry. Like you said, people are really drawn to the shiny thing or the thing that they think is going to look best resume-wise. But um, in terms of entrepreneurial just opportunity, if, if that's strictly what you're interested in, um, yeah, expanding your horizons can be a great way to do it. In this case, this kind of just, just fell into my lap. I wouldn't say I went looking to revolutionize automotive transactions um, but but being opportunistic i think it's also really important so yeah yep. that's how that's how we got to hit where we are yeah and i mean it's really interesting because for cars you know it's a, it's a pretty big purchase aside from from a house or something like that uh for any kind of individual so usually people like to try these things before they buy but um you know when we chatted uh earlier before we started recording this the you know, I remember you telling me that a lot of people are actually willing to just, you know, buy it online straight up. Yeah, so Tesla's done great things um, in the way that they've changed the consumer expectation for the way cars are sold, uh, particularly in the electric vehicle space, obviously, but it kind of permeates throughout uh, even just big ticket transactions now. I think uh, when you look at a six-year purchase cycle for someone that's buying a car, someone that's coming up to, to the end of a lease term or a finance term, um, the expectation, just because of technical innovation in other industries, is that the process is going to be different. Um, and they kind of expect that in the six years it's been since they bought their last car, there is going to be an online purchase option and there is going to be a home delivery option and there is going to be more flexible test drive availability. Um, but that's not the case. So the sweet spot for us is just being able to deliver on what people would expect to be standard based on the great work that's been done by other companies um, across industries to, to bring e-commerce to people and, and make it one of the more prevalent purchasing methods now for, you know, day-to-day -day household items or, or large ticket items. Um, automotive and real estate were the two industries that hadn't made the e-commerce switch when we started. And I know there are quite a few companies like Rocket Loans, et cetera, in the States that are trying to tackle real estate. And, and obviously our company, um, in company with many others south of the border, are trying to make the same switch in automotive. So 
I think it's great that we can at least just work on delivering a, a standard of a transaction to people, regardless of the purchase size, whether it's a house, a car, or mm-hmm. just um, groceries, something day to day. Yeah. And are you guys? Uh, so are you guys bootstrapped? Did you take in like funding from angels or VCs or? No, oh, we did it largely ourselves, and then actually just right now uh, have opened it, like an official seed financing route. Um, so we're working through that. That's that's taking most of my time right now, actually. Yeah. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about the, what the process has been like for you? Um, for us, it's it's been great. I mean, we were skeptical at first about um, partnering with venture capital firms or or sort of private investors, just because my qualifier has always kind of been that this this should be someone who a is able to provide capital, but b um, I'm looking up to from a sort of like intellectual and business perspective, like someone that I feel is is contributing, um, not just in a monetary sense. Um, luckily, that hasn't been hard to find. Um, we've had great success working with some local investors who have been very helpful to us and and offered to come on board, provide some mentorship and some help, and as well um, sort of facilitate access to capital. So I think um, you know having people see that that we're a team of sort of genuine, talented young people that are looking to do something interesting in a stagnant market um, has played into our favor. I know you know depending on how um, global your audiences, the sort of micro Victoria or even British Columbia raising scene is much different than say the the scene in the Silicon Valley or or even, you know, larger cities, Toronto, Eastern Seaboard, et cetera. Um, so there are challenges there just, just based on geography, um, but nothing that we haven't been able to overcome so far. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Uh, and jumping more into, you know, switching gears a little bit and focus more on you and your own journey as an entrepreneur. Um, you've tried many different things, um, you know, over the last few years and, and found yourself as a founder of a, of a tech company. Uh, can you walk us through a bit of what that's been like uh, since, you know, uh, from med school and, and architecture to the designs and then uh, to, to where you are today? Yeah, I'd say fully an accident, not really where I thought I would end up, but I don't mean that in a negative way at all. Um, I spent a lot of time as I'd kind of been around the tech industry or around sort of entrepreneurial venture capital type folk um, in the early stages of my education and career being a bit skeptical of the whole thing. I think you and I talked about this. I've never been mm-hmm. a big fan of sort of um, like faux motivational entrepreneurialism or sort of entrepreneurialism at the expense of, uh, you know, a more traditional career. I think it's sometimes framed in the wrong light for people who are looking for a, a quick out for, you know, significant capital return because there's a lot of uh, romance involved in, you know, college dropouts or high school dropouts that started some sort of industry revolution and and people think that's highly repeatable. Um, I always kind of stayed clear of that and and not wanted to engage with it too much. Um, But as I kind of iterated through kind of career prospectus, I'd say um, the medicine thing for other reasons, I I just didn't feel it was going to work out. And then, um, I'd say just being opportunistic when I got into the automotive industry um, and and this kind of came onto my desk, I'd say that was what led me to take the jump. It just felt like I'd be doing myself and the people that had worked on the project too much of a disservice to not 
at least give it a shot, knowing that I had the capability to take the project to the level it needed to be to be a a company that could succeed and kind of work on it at least a national, if not a global scale. And and that was exciting in and of itself. So like I said earlier, it was enough for me to kind of put aside the more romantic ideas I had of of what I wanted out of my career and say, well, I I have a pretty well-rounded skill set. I'm able to tie a lot of different things together from either my passions or my professional experiences and combine them to put this team together and and make a product that, um, even though it's not, you know, the industry that I I saw myself getting into, um, could be interesting just because of the the innovation that we could affect and the the lack of um, innovation that had been in the industry up until that point. I think that was an exciting opportunity. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, it was enough for me to to take the jump and and forgo some of the things that I was working on. Right. And how like how did you find yourself in the auto industry? You know, before you started the um, then um, itself. Well, when I moved back uh, to Victoria from Vancouver, um, I needed a job, obviously, and I was I was kind of figuring out if I wanted to take the plunge with some of the architectural stuff. Um, and then just through some family connections, I was made aware of the, the job that was available um, with an automotive group uh, doing marketing for them and some business development work. So um, interviewed for the job, ended up um, getting a job offer, obviously. I really liked um, the people that were able to bring me on board. Um, one lady that was kind of orchestrating their marketing um, prior and, and continue to work since has become a, a really good influence for me, someone that I work very closely with still. Um, so it was, yeah, I'd say very organic, nothing forced. I definitely didn't come back from uh, a failed med school career and say, I want to reinvent automotive purchasing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was pretty keen actually on getting into something design-wise or, or architecturally, yeah, it didn't happen. This is this is the kind of the way the path went for me, and I'm very happy with it. Yeah, it's been yeah, really absolutely. Exciting. Right place, right time. Turned accidental entrepreneur and just kept moving forward, right? Yeah. Okay. And did you already know your like your co-founders beforehand? What's that dynamic like between you guys? I'm really good. We met in a professional setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, I knew him to be a very talented developer, but outside of being a talented developer to have a very broad skill set in sort of um, user design, um, sort of more on a personal level too. He's very good with um, sort of analytical business problems and and uh, managing expectations for people and, you know, just had a very calm demeanor and was someone that I thought probably had what it takes. Um, to manage product and, and sort of serve a CTO function long term. Um, so yeah, we met in a professional setting, was able to monitor the way he worked uh, early on. And then kind of as things evolved and we had some conversations around product and, and he was really keen to put something together, um, it, it became pretty clear that the dynamic between us would work well um, and, and we're very complementary in our, in our skill sets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the third team member that we brought on as COO, um, again, a, a very similar thing where if I'm admitting faults for myself as sort of a, a well-rounded operator of a business, um, I'm getting much better at it now, but at the time I didn't really care much for the financial side of things. I've never been um, 
one to focus on that. So the opportunity for me that was exciting was more to build the product um, and, and to do something interesting and, and to do something that I thought could be fulfilling. And it wasn't really concerned at all about finance, partly because at the time it seemed like this might just be a little fun project for us. Um, but yeah, we met a third who was uh, had a very strong sort of stock trading and investment portfolio background. So he was able to come on and uh, help us figure out how we could take our sort of little project, sort of um, automotive design baby. It was really at the time more than more than a product, and um, apply some actual economy to it and turn it into a business. Mm -hmm. And so, like on the, I guess, advertisers end, so to speak, you connect with different uh, uh, dealerships, correct? Yeah, that's for, the, right. for the end user. Okay. And, you know, building that out and uh, looking back the last, you know, couple of years, what's been, like, what has really been your biggest challenge as an entrepreneur uh, in your journey? <clears throat> um, I'd say on a, on a business side, there are a ton of challenges for us, just obviously coming into, an industry that hasn't had much innovation as we discussed already, but then trying to convince those same people that have been unwilling to innovate that innovation is actually a good idea and that they should at least experiment with the transformation of the way they're doing business. Um, obviously it's difficult, but, but those aren't challenges that we haven't been able to get around um, either with, with good people, good conversations or improvements to the product. Um, entrepreneurial, I'd say a, a bigger challenge um, is just kind of, maintaining your vision and maintaining quality both in your people and in the product that your company puts out um, as things scale up and it, it no longer becomes possible for you to have your hands on every single typed word or every single design document that mm -hmm. that's ever shipped out to a client or to a customer. Um, obviously, we're still relatively small and that problem uh, scales up as your business scales up, but um, it's been really important for us right now to focus on from doing things that are sustainable internally, so that our, our corporate culture, our design language, our customer service voices, et cetera, um, are all solidified now when we're a smaller team and we can sit in a room and talk to each other about it so that, you know, in the fullness of time, uh, as things scale, it becomes possible for us to repeat the same great customer service or the same great product design that we can do now while we can affect everything on a larger level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we touched a little bit on the, on the dealership side there and, you know, it sounds like it's been quite a bit of a, like the biggest challenge being a culture change sort of mindset shift for, uh, for the dealers themselves to wrap their heads around the, the opportunity that you're bringing to them, but sounds like they're accepting it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just in a relatively short period of time, we've been able to um, watch the mindset shift because mm -hmm. at first the conversation was us convincing dealerships that their customers did want to purchase online. Yeah. Um, that didn't last too long and then it, it kind of shifted to us showing dealerships um, how they could enable their customers to purchase online. And, and now we're, you know, in, in a really short time period now, the phase where we don't really talk to any dealerships who uh, disagree with us that e-commerce is going to be the future of their industry. And, and now they're actively looking for solutions and partners to help them sort of propel forward and, and hopefully not go to business. <laughs> yeah. This thing shift, so the audience has become more receptive, uh, just by nature of the market and our timing. I think we had really great timing coming into the market too, where we're still considered um, innovative, and, and companies that are getting on board with us are 
are still somewhat early adapters, um, but it's it's no longer a, a huge shock to, to dealership owners or to industry personnel when we tell them mm-hmm. that we're going to facilitate e-commerce transactions. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so we talk a little bit on the dealership side. On the user side, if I am an end user and I like to purchase a new car, um, can you give me the lay of the land of the step-by-step there? What yeah. should I do and expect? For sure. So um, our goal is to make sure that if you're in the market for a car, you don't have to go on any website other than ours. So we'll show you the full suite of vehicles that are available to purchase, not just in your area, but on the market first. Um, so you can decide based on specifications, desired engine size, cargo capacity, fuel economy, whatever's important to you. Um, we'll make recommendations for you on, on which vehicles or vehicles specifically we think would be best for you in your price range. Um, then we'll show you a selection of those vehicles that are actually available in your area. Um, so for example, if you're interested in buying a truck and you know, you've made it clear that you're, you have certain priorities that would um, make the F-150 the best performer for you. Um, we'll show you a selection of Ford F-150s in your area at various price points available from dealerships um, so that you can survey the market, find one in a color that you like at a price that you agree with. And then from there, we'll actually help you facilitate the whole purchase. So we have a checkout process where you can just provide the same information that you'd have to provide the dealership um, sort of in person. But you provide it to us through our checkout platform, and then we actually take the dealership's paperwork. And there's quite a bit of paperwork required to complete the sale of a new car in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And we'll complete it with your information and make it available for the dealership to review. So you don't actually have to make any financial commitment or um, actually close the deal from a legal perspective on our platform. We just facilitate everything for you and then give it to the dealership so that all that's left for you to do is arrive at the dealership. Um, check out the car, test drive it if you wish, but then the dealership has your deal file already uh, prepared and ready to go. So with insurance documents, um, you're looking at a delivery time of between 15 and 20 minutes on your new vehicle, and right now the industry averages four and a half hours. Um, so we're giving you about four hours, 15 minutes-ish of time savings in store, and then in-market research time for a new car, um, including you know YouTube video reviews, whatever method of media you choose to consume to inform your decision. You're looking at about 40 hours or a full work week worth of research time. Um, so we're able to combine that all into one platform, do a lot of the work for you, providing personalized recommendations, facilitating the purchase, and then helping you get in and out of the dealership in, like I said, 15 to 20 minutes, um, all at no cost to the customer either. Wow. So it's very, sounds like very streamlined. Um, for for the end user, of course, which is one of the biggest uh, you know sale points for us, very convenient sure. and for the dealership. Um, obviously, they're getting passive sales. Yeah. We're delivering them fully qualified buyers who are who are ready to complete their purchase, and that's great for them, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you've been at it. It's is it Canada wide right now? Uh, we're just in British Columbia right now. Okay. Yeah, we'll be expanding out of BC um, probably second or third quarter of twenty twenty. Okay. So are you, I know you said you mentioned you're raising seed round um, at the moment. So like, are you guys, is the company profitable or are you still, you know, at that growth stage um, to reach profitability? We're still at growth stage right now. Um, we changed revenue models over the summer. We were actually on track to, to make really nice profit, but there was a ceiling on it just because we were charging a subscription-based fee for our services. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, 
rescinded all the subscription-based contracts and switched them out to selling um, transactionally, so cost per lead and cost per sale, where we're profiting on every transaction or every sort of user interaction that happens mm -hmm. on our website. Um, so obviously that has short-term negative impacts on cash flow, but long-term presents a, you know, no, no path in terms of where we can go revenue-wise um, once, once the, the platform is able to expand outside of BC. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, you guys, you've always been extremely busy the last year and a half, two years. And uh, on a more personal level, like, you know, entrepreneurship, a lot of, there's a lot of articles out there, a lot of uh, materials talking about how stressful it can be, how solitary it can be uh, at times. Um, how do you find that or how do you deal with that? Uh, definitely, but I'd say it kind of plays into my personality quite a bit. Um, it's definitely very busy. Uh, very stressful, very solitary, but um, I tend to like working by myself and, and solving problems by myself on a, on a Friday night. It's kind of always been uh, my idea of, of how I want to do a Friday night, so it's, it's not a huge issue for me. Um, I will say, I, just as I notice others in the company, though, like managing uh, burnout and, and work-life balance is, is huge. And even for myself, even though it's something that I'm bad at doing, I, I definitely need to take some some more time away from the computer um i recognize the importance of it and, and we talk about it a lot as a team just having a constant gauge on on your team's workload and how they're doing on and how their stress levels are affecting their work um i think a lot of people there's there's sort of this romanticization of um the way that startups are supposed to function and, and the crunch time and the sleeping in the office and the you know, barely having time to get a meal in because you've got some deadline. Um, and the guys at, at Basecamp um, are very big on this, that it actually probably doesn't have to be that crazy and, and your production is falling off in terms of you actually doing valuable work for the company when you're under that sort of pressure and, and you're in that bad of a mental state. Um, so we try really hard to let everyone take the time they need you know, not sort of abide by hard deadlines if we can avoid it. Um, scheduling being, you know, lenient where we can. Because definitely for things to scale up and, and for your business to have uh, sort of, you know, five plus year lifespan, even as is, it's so common for, for these businesses to fail short term. Mm -hmm. Keeping your employees and yourself happy and, and mentally stable just through managing workloads is, is huge. Um, for me, I think the biggest thing was early on part of the appeal for me um, operating the company when, when we were smaller was that I could have my hands on everything. Um, like I, I liked to be able to write the copy for all the materials to impact the design, to make the sales call, like to, to do everything. Um, and I think delegating tasks is something that I've had to, to become better at. Um, I think there's a worry often in leadership that if you want, you know, it's, if you want the thing done right, you have to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of how people operated for a long time, but that's just not sustainable. Um, so I've really personally just tried to switch to realizing that a good leader is actually able to influence the work of those around them enough that the product that they're putting out still has your fingerprints on it and is still something you'd be proud of. And hopefully even with a, a spin that you wouldn't have thought of because, you know, you've put someone else in the role and they have a fresh perspective and, and different experience than you. Um, 
but that's not a negative thing. You can still impact the work in a positive way, and hopefully everyone on your team is, is taking, you know, sort of the best of from the things you've been able to do, but then we obviously give them the license to apply their own personal experience and, and their own skills, and, and I think that's, that's really how you elevate a product past the level that you'd be able to have it exist at if it were just sort of you doing something on a personal level. Um, but that's, that's been a new thing for me and, and something that I'm working on constantly. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a very interesting point there about, um, you know, as far as leadership styles go and how a lot of, uh, especially when you start a company, as a CEO or as a founder, you're looking for the experts in the different fields so you can fire yourself from all the different jobs that you have and give it to people yeah. who actually do it better. That's their realm. Um, that's their expertise, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, there's there's so many mentalities around hiring, uh, but for us, obviously not as a huge company with an unlimited bank account. We have to be pretty selective with the people we're bringing on. But but yeah, absolutely. Um, hiring people who are better than you at the specific job that they're supposed to come in and accomplish. Um, yeah. I think I think that principle can exist and just resonate with any business, regardless of scale. It's sort of a, just a a good base level HR policy. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. Otherwise, you know, you're just building you, you yourself as a, a, a is a freelance. You're not really building a company. There's nothing wrong with that. Just a different approach um, yeah, to, sure. to doing things. Um, so, if you were to start today, um, what would you change, given all the learns that you had the last year and a half, two years? Um, I think if we were to do this again, either in the same industry or or with a different product, uh, the biggest learnings would just be around how to actually spin up the product and the business, because having never done this before, there are so many mistakes that you're just inevitably going to make with launching a product, setting up a business, just paperwork things, product market fit things, not understanding the priority of which things should happen in the business, not understanding um, how to scale up properly, how to design your product, and sort of at a V1 so that you end up with a V1 and then a V2, not a V8, 9, 10 before you launch, but all of those, I, I wouldn't say are things that I would change because there are necessary learnings to um, bring us to where we are now with the product and with the team. Uh, they're just mistakes that, you know, if you're intelligent, you only make once. So the next time around, you know, yeah. we're, we're not going to do the same things again. Um, that being said, there's no next time around for us right now. We're, we're pretty happy with where we sit and with, with our current product, but yeah, a result of a lot of um, headaches and, and mistakes and you know meetings that you didn't need to take or meetings that you should have taken but again all of it is just just part of a, a learning experience and i think distilling it down to like don't do this because you'll make a mistake as advice to a an early stage company mm -hmm. might not be wise because there's probably a, a huge lesson to be learned in that um the the you need to fail to succeed moniker that kind of exists I take a bit of issue with though. I think like micro failures within your business to inform future decisions are great, um, but less so in Victoria, more so in Silicon Valley. I notice there's um, that this idea permeates that if you haven't failed at, at you know three or four companies prior to starting this one, it's very unlikely that this one will succeed. Um, I, I don't really agree with that, so I'd say. You know, take your failures, your small failures in stride, learn from them. But if you're on your fourth company and it hasn't worked, I don't know that assuming that was part of the learning process and your fifth one's going to be a huge hit. 
and is right. Maybe there's there's something else that you should address. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Through the first four, that you should make sure you don't carry through to the fifth. Yeah, yeah. yeah and a lot of it um, sounds like focusing really on the reflecting back on those micro failures as you go through it, because you do. Everyone needs to go through them to really learn, um, as opposed to just being told, because uh, that makes a huge difference at the end. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks, Caleb. Really appreciate you uh, coming and uh, chatting with us. Um, I'm just bringing Mike back into the camera now. This is a season two, two We have cameras now. We have, we're filming this. Yeah. Um, here's Mike. Yeah. Uh, so thanks, Caleb. Really appreciate uh, you coming in today and, and taking the time to to share your story and, and tell us about Vin. Um, so thanks also to the listeners for uh, tuning in today. Uh, and definitely check out our other uh, podcast episodes. Uh, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast uh, will be there, uh, soon to be on YouTube as well, which we're super excited about. Uh, be, be also sure to check out our website at 20mile.co or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram at 20mile.co. Uh, and uh, we just want to encourage everyone to share this episode uh, with one person that you think would enjoy uh, this episode or any one of our other episodes, be sure to share it with one person and, and get the word out. Uh, and until then, just keep on marching.